You're listening to highlights from the Creative Processes interview with Peter McLaren. This podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. You know, what kind of world do we want to live in? What kind of world are we leaving our children in the next generation? What are some ways we can improve our current systems? Well, I tend to be pessimistic. I'm not optimistic about the future, but I do have hope. And I think we have to distinguish optimism from hope. The difference, I think, between optimism and hope is that hope has to be conjugated with struggle. And hope has to be, hope has to move beyond the kind of facile notions of hope that we speak about so often on a daily basis, at least in popular culture. So I think hope has to be conjugated with struggle. And I think that's something that Cornell West has made so clear. And I tend to, I'm a utopian. I will say that, I'm a utopian. I think we need utopia, but I think there's a distinction between abstract utopia and concrete utopia. You know, an abstract utopia would be something like science fiction. You know, there's another world and it's a, it's a perfect world and it's, you know, and it's been created off the planet, and, uh, but it's only accessible to few pe- a few people. That kind of abstract utopia doesn't really interest me very much. But a concrete utopia is connected to the real world struggles that people have, that they're struggling for right now which is, you know, access to to dignity, to three square meals a day, to a roof over their head, and to at least basic access to medicine and healthcare. Now, that's not what most people talk about when they talk about utopia, but it's something that people are fighting for right now all over the world. You know, I try to stress the idea that concrete utopia is, is something to do with changing the world as it is, without avoiding the messy web of horror that is inflicted upon much of the world, without avoiding that, uh, without turning away from that. And I think that's why, you know, at least in my work, I try to write from a rage, from the perspective of rage, a critical rage. And it's something that, um, I mean, I'm just unable to do it otherwise. And so I, you know, I'm, I'm a socialist. I'm a revolutionary Marxist. I'm a humanist. I also uh, work from a Catholic perspective of liberation theology, which has come into my work over the last few years. And so I'm trying, you know, I'm trying to bring together Marx and Jesus. <laughs> it's not easy. So it's, no, it's very interesting that we have to be open to different perspectives. Um, mm-hmm. And it's so interesting that, you know, even with the best intentions, you know, white nationalists, um, someone who's completely from the other side of the spectrum, or maybe not, you wouldn't even want to be on the same spectrum, but could find something or find something illustrative. You can't really, as you say, contain people's imaginations. And likewise, because this is an educational project to the, um, the creative yeah. process, so there's so many people who have, you know, their idea of reforming education is, uh, I don't know, you know, more standardized tests or more things that I think are teaching people to become more like the machines they're using. So I, I would love to hear about, I mean, your books must have, you must have had all this feedback as well from teachers, as you said, it's been, it's been used teacher training programs. I would like to hear about the, the great initiatives, some of those inspiring teachers as a way that inspire others so we can go at it positively. 
Well, for me, discovering the work of Paulo Freire was very important in my own work. You know, I was approaching education from the perspective more of, you know, the surrealists making the familiar strange and the strange familiar. And I was doing things that were Freirean-like, but I didn't have a name that, you know, that I, that I could use. And when I started reading Paulo's work, suddenly there was a whole sort of developed philosophy of praxis that seemed to uh, resemble some of the things that I was doing and that other teachers that I'd known were doing, and suddenly I could put a name to it. I've been part of a group of people that have developed what we call critical pedagogy. I guess about 10 years or so, 15 years, I decided to rename it revolutionary critical pedagogy. And I can, can explain why, because critical pedagogy, I think, became domesticated. And I met Paulo in 1985, and uh, Paulo was kind enough to write a couple of prefaces for several of my books. And he had been reading my work, and I just was astounded that he even knew my work. He's such a generous soul, and he invited me to Brazil on a number of occasions, and I worked with some Brazilian educators, eventually with educators uh, all around Latin America, including Venezuela with, under President Hugo Chavez, which was amazing. But basically, a critical pedagogy is an introduction into a way of life. It's not a methodology. A lot of teachers think somehow that, that there's a step-by-step -step process that you need to follow. You know, you begin with this, you begin, you know. And yeah, sometimes if you're teaching a, a specific lesson, obviously you want to know what you're doing uh, and have a sense of where you're going to go in a lesson. But essentially, uh, critical pedagogy is a philosophy. It's, it's a way you engage everyday life. It's understanding, you know, uh, the asymmetrical relations of power and privilege that exist in society. I know that people... Sometimes it's a matter of like feeling better to be acquainted with what the world is, you know, not being afraid to say and identify it, but then people are afraid to make that next step forward. One, they kind of, maybe they're pessimistic, you know, or two, because they may think it's not going to happen. I'm going to, you know, try to do this. I'm going to try to provide, you know, let's work towards universal health care or something, you know, but it, it's going to just be this Sisyphean rock. It's just going to keep on. <laughs> I'm not going to do it. Yeah. I think that's one element of it. And the other element is sometimes it's just not, not nice to say it, but they don't, they, yeah, they don't have confidence it will happen they or two they feel they're realists and they feel like that would be nice but what's it going to cost it's going to cost too much yeah. so they have these kind of things so is there a middle way or like a, sta a staggered way that we can move to where the world should be that doesn't alienate others or for you is it like you know we just have to like identify systems that aren't serving you know all of the population you know, that lesson was taught to me. Uh, I can still recall it when I was at Miami University of Ohio and I was teaching. You know, I was walking in with my, you know, little sunglasses on and, and my leather jacket. You know, I was standing in front of the class and I remember one of my students was in a military uniform. He, uh, I guess he was part of the, the National Guard or something. I don't know. But at any rate, he was in a military uniform and he was a uh, telling me that, uh, you know, he couldn't raise these issues with his principal and that everything I was saying, he just loved, but he said it would be impossible to even raise these issues uh, with his school and he had a family. And suddenly I began to think, here I am, you know, a tenured professor and, you know, I'm coming in, I've got my motorcycle jacket 
jacket on and I'm talking about revolution and I began to, to think that something is a bit amiss here. And so you talk, you know, a lot of people don't think dialectically. What they do is they, they say, it's either a revolution and I have a lot of comrades all around the world that think that way. That's fine. We need a revolution. Um, and But they think of revolution and reform as opposites. It's not either or. It's not either revolution or reform. It's reform and revolution. It's not either or. It's both and. And that's looking at things dialectically. So... I look at a lot of teachers, you know, are hoping to feed their, their families and to look after their loved ones and their children. And who am I to go in and say, you're not really a real Frarian pedagogue unless you do this or that? Who, who am I to say that? You know, that's irresponsible. And so I've always approached it as, you know, there are things that we can do now but let's think about things that we can do in the future. Let's just keep this vision open. You know, there's no freedom which is not simultaneously the freedom for all. We have to keep that in mind. And so that was a lesson. It was just something that hit me looking at this, maybe because he was wearing a uniform and he stuck out. I don't know, but I've always remembered the feeling inside of me. And I thought, tone yourself down, Peter, and, and start thinking dialectically. Uh, and I think that dialectical reasoning uh, is part of where we need to go. Um, we need more of a both and um, than we need an either or. We hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast. To listen to the latest episodes or learn more about participating in exhibitions or interviews, click on subscribe. Thank you for listening.